And the funny thing is, they pretend it's for you, like they had that one or two blackout nights when it's almost kind of insulting, they just parade you out for a photo opportunity, but it's like, what's the point of having two nights that you take photos at and say, look what, what the diversity we're bringing to Broadway if the other three months of the show are just as lily white as any other Broadway show. It's uh, well, yeah. it's almost more insulting. Well, that's why yeah, I stopped almost... applying for grants because I don't, I don't want to be the representative of all black people, you know, yeah. in, in terms of my art. And it's it's a real struggle just to get to the point of feeling like I can do things freely without feeling the repercussion of, or backlash, you know, that, that the, the people that feel unrepresented by one solitary piece of work are gonna feel if it doesn't speak to them or it doesn't resonate for them, so. And it was interesting, one of the things that I observed coming out of that whole thing was no one wanted to, in terms of the black, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, we'll call it journalistic aspect, no one wanted to be the first person to step out and give their thoughts unabashedly about that, that show. I noticed that a lot of the commentary that was coming out of that were people saying, I still have to process this. I don't know what I just saw. No one kind of wanted to step out and give an opinion until they saw some. They were kind of waiting for some. That was just my take. They kind of were waiting for someone else to say something. And then they were all going to just kind of take their cues and go from there. So I just found that but interesting. That's, that's as well. the nature of good art, though. I think I, I to provoke something, you know, mm -hmm. and get the emotions stirring and, and make you process. I mean, I had a lot of conversations after the show talking to people and so, you know, some of it was anger, but yeah, the biggest thing is the the play really doesn't have a cathartic. At least I saw it off Broadway. I didn't see the Broadway version, so they may have fixed. Yeah, it. I saw it off Broadway as well. You um, know, they, they I heard some differences in the Broadway version, but I'll talk about them after. Yeah, but you know, I mean, I I think you know part of part of the role of a of art is to provoke and and to to get people triggered. But I think the way it resolved itself was unsatisfying. It was sort mm -hmm. of like, you know. It's, 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 there was no advancement in terms of like, she kind of conceded all of her power to this guy. To me, at the end of it, it's like, well, you'll never understand. And it's like, okay, well, okay. But, but he gets to have his cake and eat it too. You know, his whole thing is he's not a bad white guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm very glad that I'm talking to somebody who actually uh, saw it because part of the problem is I have to kind of convey what I saw and, you know, try to solicit opinion on it. So this is kind of refreshing because, you know, not a lot of people can easily see something off off Broadway, you, yeah. you know, because it's like a regional thing. It's not like a film. But what you said, I think, is very right. But I think um, and I think this is what um, Mario was trying to say because he's talked about this with me before is that the people talk about and, and mario if i'm getting the words your sentiment wrong by all means correct me uh sure. i feel like what you're trying to say is that there's a lot of talk about uh the processing and all this stuff but then nobody ever comes back and says what they got after the processing was over yeah. mm -hmm. it becomes an exercise just for yeah. the sake of the exercise and and it seems like it, there's just this vacuous nature to the whole thing where it's it's nothing of merit really comes out you know i just yeah. I, I don't i don't know well, I, don't well I mean i like i like i like how you broke the conversation down just into the nature of the history of black theater i know all those cars on, on my side the nature the history of black theater it's all you know broadway's always been what they, they call it the great white way for a reason you know so mm. so when you start to see stories 
I mean, August Wilson, you know, he's, he speaks, so we did a, a podcast where he's like, look, when you start spreading the money around so that you're encouraging Black voices and they don't have to pander to this imaginary audience, then you'll get work that's actually more truthful and resonates, you know. But a lot of a lot of this is just, as Charles Woods would say, Black film is reactionary. It's never proactive. So, mm. so everything that exists that we have a chance to look at is a reaction to something. And right now, a lot of it was um, Black Lives Matter and Oscar So White. So and me too. So we're getting we're getting a lot of that right now. But these cycles and waves, and I can tell you right now with this virus thing, this money's gonna tighten up for everybody and black mm-hmm. people are gonna be left on their own. Mm-hmm. So, you know, get used to fucking free concerts on Instagram with Teddy Riley because that's all we're gonna have for a little while until they you know, loosen up the purse <laughs> strings or we find a way to support one another because you know, quite frankly, I mean, you know, they when they look at those Netflix numbers for the for the shows they put on, they they don't they know exactly who you are, but they they're not catering to you. They're trying to find those things that are going to trend and um, get press for them, you know, because that's that's their paradigm. It's not about getting a whole bunch of black people to show up. And when, when we had when we they, when we were over the theaters, they always have to shut them down, right? Those are some shooting the first weekend or some bullshit, you know. So so we you know we have to figure out how to do better for ourselves and then we'll start to see better work i think but anyway when when you know how, how did you want to start this man it is all up, it is all up to you we are honored to have you grace our presence so it's all fine yeah okay. this is champagne sharks this is t uh you could find the show on twitter at champagne sharks at that hashtag and we have with us mario what's going on everybody it's mario you can find me on twitter at mdmill79 Awesome. And I think uh, Ken might be joining us later. He's our other co-host. So we'll have him check in when he when he comes in. But we have our guest, Michael Dennis, uh, from the YouTube channel Real Black. And if you can introduce yourself, where to find you? At Real Black, R-E-E-L-B-L-A-C-K, everywhere. On Instagram and Twitter. I don't mess with Facebook anymore, but that's a, that's a whole different story. But if you if you just Google Real Black, you'll generally find me first. And that's R E E L B L A C K, correct? Yeah, like like right. the movie Real and then Black, awesome. you know, identity. Yes, sir. Um, now I had a bunch of set things to talk to you about, but we already started going some interesting directions. I thought it'd be interesting to just kind of close that out. Well, yeah, we... let me let me just set people up because I'm first off, thank you. It's an honor and privilege to be a part of the Champagne Sharks, and I, I listened to a lot of the other content and looked at the subjects, and it's like, wow, this is going to be a fun discussion. So, um, you know, just for people that don't know, uh, you know, I make films, but also promote films here in Philadelphia. And the YouTube channel is an offshoot of a TV show that I started on public access here to document filmmakers and artists, people that I felt were deserving of recognition. And we started that about 2007 on YouTube as well. And and now I'm happy to report because we have sort of migrated a lot of what I was doing in terms of monthly screening series over to the YouTube channel. And we post every day new content where we just crossed our 500,000 subscriber mark and uh we're reaching at this point we're reaching about a thousand new subscribers a day so so i i just wanted to continue and grow and and get us to a million 
Nice. That was something that surprised me too, was because uh, I've been following your channel for a while. And I always used it to find interesting stuff. And it wasn't so recently, it was about a week or two ago, because I think you posted somewhere, you know, thanks, con congratulations to us for passing half a million. I was like, wait, when did that happen? Like, like <laughs> so I want to oh, know. Oh, like when somebody's did, secret? What, what's, I, I, don't, I, I don't have the perception that you do. I mean, like, uh, I feel like the last time I ever looked at your follower account, like years ago, I don't remember it being close to that. I was wondering, like, when did that spike uh, happen? Was there a certain spike? Has it just been a slow and steady? Because well, I didn't realize you guys hit that uh, level until, like, well, uh, the until you announced point, it. The turning point, frankly, was when, when we did the series of interviews with Dick Gregory. That Those went viral. People were sharing them all over the place. And that's mm -hmm. when we started to get attention. And also, it was the very first time that I serialized content i was i was so adamant in the past about everything being precious and of itself you know like making things to exist for as itself that i didn't recognize that people wanted if they liked you they wanted more of what what they like you know and that was the first time because so was your film he, school he gave, us, he gave us like so many hours of content and i felt like i can't cut this into five minutes i have to give this all but I have to break it up also. That was when sort of the recipe for, I, I discovered what a lot of people already knew is like repeatable, repeatable content is what wins on YouTube. And, and mm -hmm. from there, recognizing that, and then also other forces like just the price of cable TV, people started cutting the cord and, and they started, they had, they realized they had options to watch exactly what they wanted when they wanted to, you know, so, you know, in, in a way, just being in, in for the long game, having a long tail, big inventory, when people start to discover the channel and they see we're posting things every day, they decide to subscribe. And then, you know, that information gets shared, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, we reached a tipping point basically when we had 100,000 subscribers sent a plaque. And then that was two years ago, at the end of December of last year, we hit 300,000 subscribers and now we're at half a million. So, you know, just, um, I think it's, at this stage, it's exponential growth, but also there's also this this threat that um, you know dealing with the the YouTube copyright rules, we we work within the gray area to share things, but it also puts us at risk of losing everything. So that's that's the adventure right now. Sort of like Jay Z running up and down the turnpike selling drugs so he can go in the studio, you know. So yeah, so that's that's the exciting part that um, we want to hold people's attention long enough, but at the same time stay focused on the big goals, which is Charles Woods getting his book done, getting his movies out, and me getting getting some screenplays written, some books written. So so it's 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 a it's a good time right now. And I appreciate all the love. Wait, about a hundred thousand, that was like the last time I had happened to uh, glance at your subscriber count. So mm -hmm. so yeah, it's about a hundred thousand yeah, the last it's time. An undercover thing, yeah. So, some, yeah somebody's yeah. keeping a secret, but you know, it's <laughs> all good. That's what yeah, I find interesting is uh the journey to get to where you can decide, okay, this is the type of content that your audience wants to hear and that you settle into because we went on a similar journey. And in some ways, we're kind of still on that journey um, because, you know, we ourselves have gone through some some um, some changes recently due to various things. And so some of the things that we like to touch on earlier when the show first began are, are not necessarily what we're talking about right now. And mm -hmm. it seems like our audience kind of appreciates 
where we go with certain things and they really like the content that's a little more raw and loose as opposed to things that get kind of stuck in the routine on a loop talking about the same things over and over again so that's kind of been interesting to hear you discuss how you kind of went through that and then you settled on what you settled into you know it's a similar journey in a lot of well you know i guess i said i'm working on some books one of them is called i love myself too much to hate black people but some of y'all niggas dot 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 (laughs) so is you that know, a subtitle? I, is that the subtitle? Well, the book is actually, that's just the cover and it's me smiling. And then you open it up as blank and you write the damn book yourself. Um, <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's just one of those things in reality, you can't please everybody. Right. And when you, when you establish yourself, you say, I'm real black. There's, there's a perception that, that you represent everybody who's black. And, you know, I reflect that, but at the same time, I can't please everybody's expectations, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and um, when you get into it, with some of the Twitter trolls and, and things like that. It's a lot, it's very painful when when you're making things from scratch and you're giving them away for free and then the first comment is some negative stuff. So mm-hmm. I think oh, those that, are the most that, complaining people. I'll, I'll tell you right now, like our Patreon subscribers and we have Patreon only uh, chat room and a Discord, some of the most pleasant, uh, constructive conversation you will find. and. Just that gateway of having to spend five dollars a month. Well, yeah, and, and we're talking about like if you're saying or right, a thousand people look at this video and two people complain, you know, it's it's one thing if it's something you, you mind, like okay, here's an old show that you might not know about, but it's a different thing when you're spending hours putting it together and editing it, and you're using your skills and your talent to to make it available, and then you you get that that kind of feedback and they didn't pay anything but they feel they have the right to so i think at a certain point we stopped doing mini lectures with charles i said charles you know your information is too valuable to just give Mm -hmm. away for free yeah i I agree and once we made that decision i said i'm not gonna put eight hours into making a video and get a thousand views when i could just find something that you know people have been deprived of in terms of being having access to it and it'll get 100,000 views. I think that was the shift. And that's when mm-hmm. you start to see the numbers grow. And, you know, we still put up things, you know, the numbers have allowed me to travel. I'm working right now on editing this interview I did with Antonio Fargus. And that was like a bucket list moment for me. But, mm. you know, I had, I had, it took, it probably took a year to reconcile that, okay, so the things that I think are going to be people be excited about, they're not going to care yet. You know, so so it's I think nice yeah, I think this, yet, yeah, it's I'm nice to have yes. this, this sort of trail, you know, and then maybe somebody if if I get to where I I imagine myself being, people can look back at this and say, oh, okay, that's that was the breadcrumbs, you know, and then maybe if they're if they have the initiative, they can they can do it too. But I mean, I I, I look at myself as another YouTuber who is trying to get into a, a bigger uh, scale, but maintain some integrity you know so i you know it's nice that people when i go to film festivals like oh i love that you spoke to ava duvernay so early i love that you spoke to chris rock so early i love that you have Issa ray before she had her hair straightened or whatever the whatever it is you know because then that's where you can see yourself and you can um, you can project yourself into that bigger vision but if you if everything is just promoting celebrity, then we're going to be where we we're going to stay where we are, you know. So yeah, 
but but I really like that you said yet because I think that's very important mindset. Like just because it wasn't popping at first, it's very easy to think, okay, that that didn't work. I'm gonna give up on it for good. But the fact that you said yet, I think, is important because I think a lot of times when you do get popular for something else, that popularity allows you the room or the audience for that stuff that people weren't ready for yet, you know, like you said, to now get attention. Because I'm sure there's a lot of people who, by getting in through a lot of your more obscure, nostalgic stuff, have well, yeah. perused I mean, the back. You know, yeah, you have to work. I mean, I'm, I'm anti-establishment, but I'm for systems, you know. So, you know, I, I like subversive things, but, but I... In my own experience, yeah, things the things that have hit, I kind of knew instantly that they were going to hit. And yeah, I couldn't tell you exactly how, but I just knew. So I've I've been I've been around the block enough not to not to question that, you know. But I also know that it's it's very traumatizing to put my heart and soul into something and then have somebody not like it or say something cruel. And I know that that's 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 a risk that you have to make yourself vulnerable to sort of like if you watch the patrice o'neill interview we did that that he taught me a lot just sitting with him he said you know you the minute you say i might lose then it makes everything easy you know if you, yeah if you're, he was if very you're good about talking fear about of approaching a, a girl or whatever it is if you're holding on to that fear then you're not you're not free you know so you you have to create an like have a path but have you know don't don't have a plan b necessarily but but uh, uh, realize that you have options. You know, if you if you just put everything on one outcome, then it's not going to work. But but uh, if, if have you do things, the movie you do things for the right reasons and with the yeah. right intentions, I, I think generally it works out eventually. And we, we're having that experience now. I just uploaded my friend's movie. We worked on it. I shot. It's called The Rodneys, um, and I put it up yesterday. It's got a, about two thousand views already. And this is a movie that. Uh, he he just made we shot in two weeks and you know just basically didn't go anywhere and now the technology i i can upload it on my platform and i think more people have seen it in two days and have seen it its entire lifetime before that and people are loving it you know so so you just main just trust just trust that if you have the right intentions it'll eventually get to where you need it to go have have any of you seen the movie gattaca gattaca yeah. Yeah, um, that's with Ethan Hawke and uh, yeah. I remember. Yeah, well, we sort of stuck at the video guy. store. Yeah, there was a live entertainment release. Um, I'm thinking, no, I well, I'm thinking of the other movie with um, the Jay from um, the um, crying game, but the Gattaca, what's that one? Oh, well, well Gattaca was, and and Mario, you said you've seen this. There's something you yeah. said, but you talked with Patricia Neal that reminded me of a scene in Gattaca. Well, in Gattaca, it's about people are kind of stamped from birth with uh, their genetic potential. Like, they kind of scan you, and from birth they say, oh, you have top potential, or you're only good enough, you know, based on your genes to be this good. So you kind of slotted uh, into your place, into the world slotted in this level you end up becoming like a janitor or a worker or whatever and you have to have carried like a card that shows your uh, potential and this guy takes the identity of somebody who's considered like one of the higher genetic people one of the genetic elites and he lives his life as like a masquerade pretending to be this person but he makes it to that higher that he wasn't supposed to make it you know but his brother is one of those people who was born with the high genetic potential. But something that he and his brother used to do growing up, right? They used to do this race 
a swimming race across a pond. Ethan Hawke would keep uh, beating his brother, and his brother would get mad because he was supposed to be the, the better one, and his brother is just getting really frustrated. It's like Dragon Ball with Goku and Vegeta. Like, you know, he, he can't he can't catch this guy ever for his life. And right. so finally, while they're swimming, the, and this is what would happen every time, the brother would stop and turn back. And then, so the brother does it again. He stops and he starts turning back. But as he's turning back, he yells to Ethan Hawke. He goes, how did you keep doing this? How did you keep beating me all the time, no matter you know what they said? And Ethan Hawke is still going forward. And he said, I never saved anything for the trip back. That reminds me of what you said with uh, Patrice O'Neill about if you believe that you can, you know, if you, if you believe that I can fail or whatever, but I'm going to go forward anyway, you know? Uh, yeah. Well, that's, it opens that's... up a lot of stuff. But that brother, he couldn't accept the fact that he might fail. He'd rather go back and tell himself, maybe if I kept going, it would have worked out. You know, give himself that that mental out. Well, yeah, well, that's every hero's journey. You know, that's Joseph Campbell. You know, you have to confront your fears. Your fears, if you don't, your fear will manifest. You're, you're going to be forced to deal with things. And I think, you know, as a nation, when they say all men are created equal, that's, that's an ideal. It's, but it's not, there's nothing true about it. You know, I think everybody is stamped individually. You know, we're, we're our own limited edition. And I think you benefit if you find a purpose. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's your fate. Just find something you love and get good enough at it so that, that it, it motivates your day. And then, and then this, the magic starts to happen. But the, yeah, the minute you start to buy into somebody else's belief and not take accountability for your, yourself or your own and, and take accountability and be responsible for your own actions, that's when the blame games start and you start, you know, and I'm not saying things don't exist. I mean, you know, I, you know, white supremacy is a real thing and it, it needs to, people need to be aware of how we're manipulated and controlled by it. And, you know, I, right now, my intentions, while I'm working on these bigger things, my, my main thing is I don't want black film to devolve into mumble rap, you know, so it's important for me to share what I know and, and provide information on a, on a level scale and let people just have access to, to information and then they can decide what they want. And then the second thing, you know, because in my experience, it's not, in my experience, it's, you know, if I, if I was concerned just about artists, I'd starve, you know, if I was just trying to feed artists and give people information, to make their work better, I would starve because everybody's got this weird ego thing going, but audiences have kept me in business, you know? So I think it's important to remind people of what, you know, that it feels good to be black, you know, and give, give people a, a reason to, you know, ignore some of this news, you know, um, but the I ego hate thing is up killer. Every day and seeing some ignorant thing on Instagram or, or being told that I'm lesser <laughs> than, and yeah. you know when we when we got shut down in December, or well, maybe a little bit before that, I think when I interviewed Gary Owen, <laughs> and there was such a backlash um, that I had to take more responsibility and say, wow, okay, yeah, this is the only one of the few places I should say maybe Champagne Sharks. Is another one of the few places you can go every day on the internet and discover positive and good things about yourself and, and maybe educate yourself a little bit in the process. So, mm -hmm. so I, I take those two things on as my mantle. I just, you know, I, I know how subcultures get exploited and I, I can see it coming where 
if we don't raise the bar a little bit, we we could have base, basically all all your favorite Instagram mumble rappers being the star of a movie, and then that gets promoted, and then that becomes the paradigm because it made a lot of money, and that and yeah. you get ten years of that. So I'm trying to trying to I, fight I, that I, outcome. Yeah, I think the mumble rap can be okay if there's balance for it, but I feel like there's been a hollowing out of the middle where things are either like mumble rap for black people or it's um something that's kind of like uh blackish or something where it's it's kind of made for um prime time and kind of i don't want to say snobby well, uh, well you have but, to you have to follow the money you know i mean yeah you know, like the the hood is i want to get rich you know so if there's a lane where you really don't have to have a lot of talent you just have to have a, a vibe or, or a wave and you don't have to work hard necessarily to get attention you know you're going to see people do that and then a lot of the stuff to get to get to the level where you're invited into a boardroom to pitch a tv show you got you got to have certain credentials you know and you have to be able to talk a certain way and and maybe your perception of the world is blackish like you know these these guys say if you're if you're if you're second third generation rich not wealthy but rich and now you're starting to see your kids not growing up you know, with the same struggle you did, then that that's what comes from your heart. Now, you know, do you accept or reject it from your own perspective? That's a, as an audience member, that's a different question. You know, what what's put up for your entertainment? You know, the same question was raised. I don't know if you guys saw Color Adjustment, Marlon Riggs movie. But, um, no, I saw. No, I didn't see Marlon Riggs. But we we tend everything's reactionary, so we we tend to get one flavor of black at, at one time at any given mm-hmm. time we get we're only get introduced to one or two flavors you know right now i think a lot of black artists and filmmakers they're they're happy to have the bigger box of crayons you know i remember when i was younger you know it was like a big deal to to you know school would be starting in third grade you get that big 128 box of crayola you know he's <laughs> like i'm gonna kill it you know, but the same five, the same 12 colors that were in the first box of crayons you got are, are the ones that are worn down. You never used all 128 colors, you know, so so we, we finally get the big box of crayons and, and we're replicating a lot of what what we wish we had seen when we were younger, what what we wish we had. But it's still to me, it's still not enough. But but I think quality trumps everything and the smart people are going to win you know so i hope so you can't keep dumbing down the culture just for the sake of more people getting rich and then they don't know what to do with the money or they mm-hmm. don't they don't perpetuate it so that other people can be as successful and then you have this sort of like envy and jealousy that stigma house negro field negro thing so i i just yeah. don't i refuse yeah, to be I, part of yeah, uh, yeah, the house negro field negro thing i think is really is big. Like a big deal. yeah that's the thing that we uh talk about uh ken just ken just joined us our other co-host what's up ken? um what's up, y'all? yeah hey. how you doing kenny what's going on y'all? how you doing but, good, hey how good. you doing i was but, gonna but, say um a part of that when you talked about uh, the blackish types that get into these managed to get into meetings with executives and things like that Versus, you know, like the hood and, and, you know, the things that you have to try to get rich or for, by any means necessary mentality or what have you. You know, when we talk about the blackish type things, and I, I noticed, you know, from my own work in the community and things like that, that it takes a certain level of 
discipline in that you have to be able to play the game in order to get placed in these situations where you have the so-called seat at the table. And it, it, it in and of itself, is it, it does take a certain level of discipline in order to get there because I know me, I come from a poor background. I grew up in the hood and everything like that. And I noticed that I, I just, I didn't have the patience to play those games. And a lot of times I noticed that those people knew that, like the people like me, <laughs> they knew like, okay, we could put a certain amount of hoops. We can do this, that, and play certain political games. And I know that these little field Negroes, they'll drop back eventually because they'll get tired of it, you know, and they'll make a mistake due to their lack of, uh, for lack of a better term, discipline in order to move forward. And so I was wondering, like, did you, did, do you notice that in, in your work as well and what you've been doing over the years? Uh, I, I have a different perception of it, but the outcome okay. is the same. You know, I mean, I, mm -hmm. I think, you know, I, I just don't want to buy into that nonsense at this point because mm -hmm. there's more land available you know we're, yes, we shouldn't be fighting true. at this point because everybody is in the same position essentially with the internet to reach directly to the people that matter to mm -hmm. to them you know it's not about you know getting being a ratings hit or or any of that stuff it's just you know if you you can go directly to the people that that care the most and and if as an artist as an independent artist you know the the thousand true fans thing is is the most realistic paradigm yeah. i mean for me you know i i'm trying to get this thing to a million because i want the the voice the the information that's on there amplified i want as many people to know that this stuff is out there so they don't waste their time watching stuff over and over again that that they've already digested you know so we're we're trying to discover and rediscover talent and and make people more aware that the conversations that are being had have been had generations previous. And, and then, you know, it's up to you, you know, how, how deep you want to go to try and break your cycles. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's, it's real. I mean, I went to Sundance and, you know, black people were so arrogant. It made me not even want to be there. You know, mm. it's just like, you know, they, nobody has business cards and, you know, it's, it's some sort of invisible competition belief that, you know, you know, if you don't have, I mean, and it is business. I mean, like clearly, you know, if you're not in a position to make money for somebody, they have no reason to really talk to you in a, in a space like that. But at the same mm -hmm. time, if there's only five black people there, we should all be friends. But that's, you know? but that's the problem. I'll tell you yeah. from my personal experience is, uh, I'm the kind of person that I will travel in all black circles or all white circles. And one thing I notice is that when it's an all black room, the energy is a little different, but a lot mm -hmm. of times when you're in a room with mostly white people and there's only a handful of black people, a lot of black people treat life like I'm competing with the other black person in the room. They don't try to think of the whole room as a competition or think, hey, that, there's like less they of can't, us. <clears throat> they can't compete with white you, people. Well, yeah, well, we, people, yeah, well, we subscribe they can't to this with white people, or, or, or they're competing for the white people. That's the other mm -hmm. thing, too. There's yeah. that, too. They can't compete That's with the white people, or they feel like I'm competing against the black people who are easier to compete for with. For white attention. For the attention, yeah. the white mm. people, instead of when it's probably a lot better to think. And I get into this trouble a lot, right? Where, you know, I used to have this habit, right, where when I saw only a few black people in the room, I'm like, oh, there's less of us. Let's get together. We're strength in numbers. We need to be together more than ever. So I would seek out that other black person in the room. Yeah. And after a couple of times of having a really negative experience with that, I started realizing, oh, wait a minute. 
these people see me as more of a threat than they see the white people, even though I have a fraction Man. of the power or resources mm-hmm. as the white person. It kind of forced me to kind of have to react that way. Like now when I see yeah. another black person in a room of white people, I have to suss out. Whereas before, I would just assume that, you know, we had a common goal. Man, I just suss yeah. out, is this person going to be someone that's going to be an ally or is going to be the person who views, who's going to try to cut my legs out from under me? Gee, that, that is a great observation because I, I, you, we have these conversations all the time and I've noticed the exact same thing. I went through the exact same process, you know, um, from thinking uh, we all have similar interests. Let's get together and have the strength in numbers. And then realizing that there are systems, even amongst Black people, there's, you know, certain, for lack of a better term, hierarchies in place that they'll follow to the to the detriment a lot of times to the entire group because they feel like, you know, we're here, you're there, that's your place over there, we belong here, we have these contacts and everything. It's just, it's just a weird thing to realize, you know? I, I, I think a lot of us buy into this paradigm that white people feel, feed us, which is there's only room for one of you at a time. What, what, what do they call it, like one nigga at a time? One yeah, nigga at a time rule. <laughs> and, and, and instead of like getting together and saying, no, expand it to three or four of us, a lot of us will think, well, okay, just accept it. Okay, there's one nigga at a time, so I, I got to make sure it's me. Well, the, prob- the problem you know, is like, with, the, with the one nigga at a time method <clears throat> is that, you know, if you said to all black people, well, fuck it, let's just storm the house. You know what I'm saying? Forget one nigga at a time. Let's just, I'm going to go through the window. You go through the back door. You come through the roof. They feel like right. that is watered down. It's not as good if everybody's in. Well, I, w- I would say, you know, that's that's all part of the plan. The nature of racism as a disease is divide and conquer. You know, that's how they got us. But and the the reality is we didn't all come over on the same boat and the bravest of us jumped overboard because they weren't afraid to die. Mm. So where we are now is how do we save ourselves? It's obvious right now, nobody cares about anybody and they will pick your bones, you know, once you're dead, you know, how people are still eating off of Michael Jackson, you know, people loved him. Now they're, they're finding ways to hate him, you know, and still get money off this guy, you know? So, so the, the you know, there's very, very few of us that get to be the best of us, but um, there's a torch that should be carried. And if, if we, if we can, have access to history, you know, because a lot of, a lot of us like, I mean, what, what the, what the beauty of the channel, you know, I had a chance to talk to so many elders, you know, sort of, um, one of the things Harry Belafonte would say is each generation is responsible for its own. And what, what tends to happen, I think is it's such a tough thing. You get beat down and then society has a way of discrediting you. And then you lose sight of the accomplishments of, of, of the previous generations, you know, and if you're talking about artists, you know, I remember when at my age, early, I didn't grow up in the 70s where I knew the 70s. I grew up in, I was born in 69. I knew James Brown. But when Eddie Murphy did the hot tub and his impression on Delirious, that became my perception of James Brown. It wasn't until I got to college and I, I got a hold of the Star Time box set and I listened to that guy's body work all the way through. I said, wow, this guy was a freaking genius. He wasn't just a parody of himself, you know? And I think a lot between, the fact that we end up building up heroes to tear them down, you know, um, the Rick Jameses of the world become jokes and, you know, Bill Cosby's a big punchline now. We, we lose sight of the legacies. And then also within our own family structure, you know, either we ha- we grew up around a bunch of ignorant people, like Dick Greg would say, that really didn't know more. You know, like my, my, 
my family, their sole intent was just to get me to go to college. They didn't tell me how to navigate through it, you know, build relationships through it. It was just get get your degree, get your diploma. So, I, you know, coming out, everybody has their own lessons they have to learn about real life. But it was a little more difficult for me because I started, I saw all these white kids succeeding in major ways that were right next to me in class, you know, and that, I think that's what gives me on my perseverance is that, you know, I went to school with Brett Ratner. I went to school with Todd Phillips. I helped program a film festival with him. You know, I knew um, a lot of these people, the, the, all the people from the state, you know, the, the David Waynes of the world, NYU, you know, Night Shyamalan. I mean, they've made billions of dollars for Hollywood. And literally there was a moment when I was, like you said, Gattaca, you know, in the same race with these people. So I don't have any lack of confidence in terms of my talent. And that's that's what's kept me in it. But, you know, to get to get back to what I was saying, I mean, you have to you have to overcome your level of ignorance at a at a certain level. And I think at this point, that divide and conquer, it, it should it, it we should we should let some of that go. Cause I, I can show you newspapers from the thirties when people were saying there's enough black theaters in this country. We're talking about segregation. This is there's like 500 theaters that show nothing but black films. We in three years, million dollar pictures will control all of us. And of course, you know, it didn't happen. And uh, half of their films that they made are lost to time. You know, the, the you can't even find prints of them. That's a tricky thing about that, though. Take, for example, the Negro League, right? Mm -hmm. People don't realize how popular the Negro League was. Kind of popular perception, the Negro League was lesser talented than than the major league baseball people think that oh um people think i mean it wasn't called major league baseball at the time it was a different different league mm -hmm. but but people always think that it was a matter of particularly particularly racist, racist people they think it was a matter of people being good enough to make it to uh the major leagues and that uh and that jackie robinson was the best but you know people argue jackie robinson wasn't even the best person he wasn't in even the top 30 yeah he yeah he was just the most marketable i mean he was very talented but there was um he was, he was, he was, he wasn't even top 30 and still won rookie of the year in the major leagues when he got there. So you can talk to white baseball players from then Daffy Dean, Dizzy Dean, they will play against those barns. Those are, these are hall of famers and the Negro leagues would play against these teams and beat that. They beat the hell out of them. Yeah. Walter Johnson, all of them, they all played against the Negro leagues and got bashed, got smoked every summer. They got smoked. Yeah. Yeah. They would have exhibition games and they made like a lot of money as well. But a lot of people theorize that what really messed it up was people think of Jackie Robinson as being this great thing that happened because he broke the color barrier and was um, integrated. But a lot of people said once that color barrier was broken and more and more talent started entering major, major league baseball, um, it kind of sucked the life out of the Negro leagues. And now the Negro leagues couldn't, couldn't survive because, you know, there's a lot of that thing of, the ice man, the white man's ice is colder, you know? So some people think if the Negro leagues just stuck to his guns and just uh, kept putting out superior product and producing better uh, no, athletes, no, but it, it could have been very lucrative it for... I, I mean, we just put up the Jackie Robinson, court martial Jackie Robinson yesterday and a lot of people commenting like that. But I mean, you know, I think integration was a good thing. It's just when you give away your power... And yeah, exactly. you don't recognize, I mean, the problem was, you know, yeah, the, the white man's ice is colder. So when you indoctrinate people into a belief system of capitalism, the nature of capitalism is to drain every potential resource and then 
until it's gone and then find another thing to raid and drain, you know? So, you know, when you don't put back into the land, you know, growing people and making them smarter, when we were, when we couldn't go to Harvard or Princeton or whatever, we, we thought nothing of it. And we, we had our own pride, you know? And I think, you know, when, when we start buying into the Eurocentric belief system and discarding our own, which was stolen from us. Most of us don't have any real sense of, none of us know our real name, right? So I think that's really a problem, but I I think it's much better to not, you know, we also put up Bessie Smith. I mean, her rumor was that she died because she was in a car accident and the white uh, hospital was closer, wouldn't service her. So they had to travel further and and it cost her a life, you know? So, So I'd much rather be able to have those options they're not. Well, and it's just well, the well, problem well, is they, saying, the, the white What you say is very though. true. Hmm? Like Malcolm Gladwell had this podcast, Revisionist History. Uh, he referred to this book and it was pretty interesting. It was the book about Brown versus Board of Education. And he had a lot of interviews that you don't really see in the uh, white history books about Brown versus Board of Education. And what was interesting was the families in Brown versus Board of Education, they said, we actually, a lot of people think that the problem was that our schools were inferior. We actually, the schools that we were sending our black kids to had great teachers, great education. Uh, we really loved the teachers. We really loved the education. The problem was we didn't think it was to have to send our kids to commute like hours when there was a school down the block that they could go to. So they were like, we were happy to get our kids into this white school, but it wasn't that we thought, oh, being around white people is its own reward. Like by the osmosis of exposure to white people, we're going to... Our kids gotta automatically like absorb something like a sponge that's good that they're not getting from being around black people. But what uh, Malcolm Gladwell was saying was, and what the people they were interviewing uh, were saying was that we don't like this narrative that people just kind of assume it has become like the natural thought that they think the black school was inferior. And I'm well, saying that was, to say that was. I think you're they, right. They the simulation, there's nothing they, wrong they with that. It's good to have so the option. It's just when people think that the option is better just because it's white is when right. the problem I, I starts. Think the trick, I think the trick of white supremacy is to get black people in, in, stuck in this mode of constantly having to prove to them that we are as good or better. So it automatically puts us in this mindset of they are the bar and we're going to have to constantly prove that we can exceed or that that bar. And so when you get stuck in that mindset, it could lead to all kinds of, of toxic behavior in, in, a, in, a, in a perpetual inferiority complex because yep. you just feel like you have to prove it all the time. So they are always the bar in the competition instead of yourself being your own bar in your own competition. You know, we kind of got something stuck para- in that loop as a people. Something paradoxical about that too is in the, in the act of trying to prove it, you kind of end up believing it because sometimes, right. sometimes you have to almost believe that you're inferior to be obsessed with proving that you're And that's the not, trick of it. That's the beauty yeah, of the, yeah. the system. Because a lot of black people think the same. I used to think the same thing. I used to think that that's what integration was about, that the black schools were worse. I had to learn by discovering better forms of history books and contemporaneous interviews to find out that the black schools are actually very good. But I, I assumed that. I was taught that. that well, uh, good, good in the sense that you had teachers that resembled you, that took an interest in you, weren't just going to throw you in the dustpan the minute you got an F, you know. So, yeah, yeah. But, but the actual caliber of education, too. Like they were saying that, you know, they, they, they were learning what they were supposed to be learning at certain schools. I remember yeah, I, listening I, you know, to... Uh, 
what's his name? Well, gosh, I'm having a brain freeze right now. The Thomas Sowell. And I remember him speaking on that. He was saying that he went to the black schools his entire child life. And then when they moved, uh, he started going to the white schools. And he said when he got there and he found that, you know, he was a little bit behind in terms of competing educationally, but it didn't take long for him to catch up and surpass those kids that were that were at the better funded uh, white schools. So that's kind of like what you your to your point, uh, T, is that even if they were somewhat resource starved and that's what the cause was for them being uh, quote unquote inferior, they weren't that far behind in terms of overall uh, rigor and, and academic ability. Yeah, yeah, the school might be dilapidated, you know, right. because it wasn't getting the funding that it should, but the actual like education was not as what we were led to believe growing up in the narrative. Well, You're gonna say something, Mike. I'm sorry, I, ca- well, I think I, I cut in know, before you I, got to I, your point. I think. I think the thing to look at it, it it's just um self perception. We're we're coming from if you if you identify yourself as African American, you're basically coming from a legacy where basically if if you weren't ahead of the game before slavery ended, and you know, this is a problem I have with the HBCU documentary. It's so so like there were no educated blacks until slavery ended, and then we had to create our own. That's 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 mythology too, because there were lots of educated black people um who were not slaves prior to 1865. You know, but but I, I would say, you know, you know, we're we're in a position where we do have power. We just don't always utilize it in terms of image you know we're in a capitalistic society they're they're going to replicate what they perceive as selling and i think if you're an artist or, or an entrepreneur you you don't necessarily have to compete for the masses anymore again like getting back to a thousand true fans if you if uh, the, the concept there is if you have a thousand people that would give you a hundred dollars a year uh to support your art you're making a hundred thousand dollars, and who, what artists in America can't live on a hundred thousand dollars a year? It, it, you know, it, it, when you break things down on that level, you, you, then who wants, who needs to be a millionaire? You work your way up to a million, baby. But if you if you just work towards getting a thousand people to share a hundred dollars of of their resource or whatever it is, time, effort to help you sustain yourself, you know, in ten years you will have made a million dollars from your art. So so I, I think. The bigger, the bigger thing. If you look at there's a Maya Angelou interview on the channel, and also Woody King talks about it. It's like when when our parents, you know, she, she, Maya says somebody dropped the ball. It's like when we start to believe that sending our kids to Harvard or Princeton or Yale was the be all and end all. My baby's got a degree; he's going to be a doctor or whatever. And then you don't factor in all the other issues of student loan debts and um, just opportunities that that are are less. Or other things that are part of the systemic. Form it's psychologically of too. I think psychologically, uh, being yeah, the token you, you has its own ramifications. You, you too. basically sent your kids to the wolves. You you've brainwashed them into believing that they were the same or equal to these white kids without giving them the factors of that that would in, institute self pride. And you know, I was lucky at, at a time. You know, when I when I was at a time in college, I was in New York, and you know, yeah, they're they're teaching us. Sergey Eisenstein and showing us Orson Welles and D.W. Griffith, but at the same time, on the streets, public enemies happening. Karis One is speaking at the Black Student Union, and and also Fishbone, and you know, there's so much diversity in terms of Black culture in the late '80s, early '90s um, that I wish would come back. But you know, we, you know, it, it got commodified, you know, and and a lot of a lot of the more conscious efforts fell off, and and you suddenly see Ice Cube in family comedies and Queen Latifah 
next to Steve Martin, it's like, okay, that's not necessarily what I expected, but more power to them if they're making some money. But then then for the next generation didn't necessarily grow up in that time. They look at st- straight out of Compton and all of a sudden these misogynist gangster rappers are freaking freedom fighters. I'm like, come on, get, get out of here, you know? So I think I think you need you need to be able to lay things out and and see everything as as a bigger tapestry than what we're getting, you know, when we're only getting one image or two images of ourselves at a time and they fall into these, these sort of stereotypes, you know, the, you know, either, like you said, the hood version of ourselves or the upwardly mobile version of ourselves, you know, it's, it'd be great if we could see a a wider range of broader diversity and then pick and choose what, what we want to be from that. But, you know, that's, that's going to be a struggle. And then economic power, that's a whole nother discussion, you know, um, but, Right now, it frustrates me that so much of, well, prior to this, all the theaters being shut down, I think Spike Lee had something to do with it. Uh, when they wouldn't let him into the Knicks game, he's like, I'm never going to a Knicks game the rest of the season. And like a week later, the whole season, all <laughs> NBA is canceled. I was like, oh my God, I hope Spike had nothing to do with that. But, mm. um, you know, so, you know, we just have to recognize our power, focus it, focus our energy in, into specific goals and not buy into um, this divide and conquer of, okay, this didn't speak to me. But at the same time, speak speak out against things that, that are working against us, you know, and there are a lot, there are a lot of things that we, we really should not be, have sold to us and, and be yeah. willing to buy, so... What is your background before you started making the channel? Like what, like before you even get to the evolution of the channel, like, cause you've touched on it here and there throughout this talk, but I don't think you've said it like all at once. Like I know the film school was there and I think, um, the film school thing kind of shows the change of your approach to the channel. Cause you said that you were thinking that you had to make everything into one complete thing. And I think that's probably evidence of thinking like a film and you kind of had to break out of it, you know, to, uh, start thinking by the rules of online like you know this is not a film this is online the rules are a little different it's a little more like tv it's a little more episodic it's a little more broken i'm i'm, I'm i kind of want to get into yeah the technology th- that, a lot of that background uh that, that you had before you uh, made this channel and how you had to kind of change how you thought about certain things you know going from that background to this current place of being online well i mean my my story is that yeah i was extremely lucky you know, I, I came in at a time when the door was starting to open again. You know, if I was born two or three years earlier, it, it wouldn't have been the same. And later, it wouldn't have been the same. You know, uh, I was like movies and I think sophomore year of high school, you know, it's just junky for it. And you had between, uh, I thought it was going to be like John Hughes or John Landis, you know, because we, we didn't have any black movies before Spike Lee. And then um, She's Gotta Have It and Hollywood Shuffle came out in 87. Um, and that, that sort of shifted my the opportunities and goals for me. But I but I knew I wanted, because of Spike Lee and Jim Jarmusch, I said, this NYU is the place I want to go. I applied to two schools, uh, Temple University and um, actually three, uh, UCLA and, and um, NYU. And I got into NYU. And uh, that was the beginning. And a lot of kids i mean also at nyu you figure from 88 to 91 or so 93 really because it took it took a long time to finish my last film but um 
a lot was happening not only in New York City, you know, but in film. I mean, it was the epicenter of um, music video production. And there were a lot of hip hop labels. A lot of my friends wrote for The Source when it when it first moved to New York. The Source offices were down the street. So like, you know, Maddie C, who discovered Biggie, he was a classmate of mine in a, a Black American music class we'd sit in the back and talk and stuff and just had had good opportunities i interned at um broadway video which was lauren michael's company i interned at the black filmmaker foundation and i was an intern on the original cosby show knew a lot of people i think rachel true was a, a stand-in at the time and you know so i was around a lot of good people there was a sense of community i could kind of see because i was sort of on the inside but still young how how it worked a little bit you know, so so with the Black Filmmaker Foundation, when House Party came out, and that's when I became aware of it. At the end credits, it was like, you know, special thanks to the Black Filmmaker Foundation. Like, there's a Black Filmmaker Foundation. So I went down there and I got a chance to sort of meet whatever the the burgeoning scene was in New York. The independent filmmakers there that were all trying to get on that same ride that Spike had. And at the same time, they were sharing offices with William Greaves, who at the time, I, I just knew he was an old guy, but I found out later he was a legend in terms of documentary filmmaking. And, and got Is he the one that made something like Psycho Toxoplasm? Yeah, that, yeah, actually, the, the BFF premiered the film. You know, it was a film that was sitting in a drawer for like 15 years, and then he just he decided to dust it off, and it was instantly proclaimed a classic. It's one of the few black films, if you want to call call them that, uh, on the Criterion Collection is William Greaves' movie. Oh, you know, oh, here we go. Symbiopsychotaxoplasm. Yeah, take one and then take two. But yeah, I mean, people like him and, and um, Ossie Davis and Melvin Van Peebles, the, these were people that had circumvented the system in order to be able to make films and, and declare themselves filmmakers. You know, so, so, you know, I got to touch them and then, you know, Urban World, I think I got into... AFI. And um, around that time, Urban World in New York had started. And I would go every year because it was it was close to Philly. And every year I was like excited, but I was like, I could do better. But I, you know, I didn't have any resources. I really literally spent my last penny to get to get to film school to finish a film costs so much more money now. I mean, you know, it's a can of 10 minutes of film, 16 millimeter film was $100. And then to get out of the lab, to even say if it was in focus, it was another $100. And then to rent a steam back, you know. So, you know, I, you know, long story short, when Final Cut Pro came out and somebody told me for $10,000, you could have a video camera and edit and it would be broadcast quality. That's when, it, it, that was the first liberating moment. I got all that stuff. And within two years, I had five sh movies circulating in film festivals uh four shorts and one feature documentary were playing festivals but I, I didn't have a plan to make money i was just like oh i'm just happy to express myself so you know now you know but it, it brought me to the attention it gave me the opportunity to travel at the time there was no film festival in philadelphia committed to black film i saw the amount of work that it would take to put a yearly festival together i i didn't want to do that and i but i was invited to do a monthly screening series and that was december of 2003 we started with the screening of claudine which was just starting to come out on dvd it was the very first time it was on ever released it was never on vhs so if you can imagine a free screening standing room only 120 people who are getting a chance to see claudine in a pristine 
print, you know, free of charge. You know, it's just so much energy in the room, and it's just like from from day one, it was a hit. To wow, I did not know Claudine never got a VHS release. Oh well, if you had it on VHS, it was after the DVD or it was right, right, right. But, That's wow. but it was one of those things. You know, we were just showing. You know, up on Saturday night, and you know, um, that's the way of the world. Those were the early things to get people hooked. And then, as I started traveling, going to festivals, and meet filmmakers, I would invite them to the screening series. And we got Love, Sex, and Eating the Bones, which is still one of my favorite movies. Um, and um, you know, Pete Chapman and Dorian Missick came and showed Premium. And you know, so this is like mid two thousands, and then. Uh, industry caught wind that we could, you know, this pre whatever, you know, that I, my mailing list was such where I could send a blast out a day before and get a hundred people to show up. So now I'm being asked to introduce movies with black actors, you know, um, cause that, that was, that was the beginning of the wave 2005, 2006, we saw another resurgence of black movies, the hustle and the flow. And, um, I got Carrie Washington. We introduced um, I think I love my wife and she came and met everybody and Nick Cannon came for the underclassmen. And, you know, these were really big moments for a lot of people um, to, to be in a movie theater, to see a movie for the first time and have like the actor or the star involved or to get like a t-shirt or something out of it. And that just helped us build the reputation, you know, and then did that for 16 years, just, and then it started to trickle off. But at the same time, our YouTube numbers were growing and, you know, that instituted another wave. I was able to travel again. And like I said, bucket list moments, go meet Antonio Fargas, go meet Roger Corman and, and create content for the channel um, on the road instead of waiting for people to come to Philadelphia. I have the opportunity now, or prior to all this stuff, to, to be able to go meet people firsthand and, and um, try, to, try to get some movies restored from the, from the resources that I have available now. You know, sort of like a and uh, not and also Ava DuVernay, you know, that was a big, big, big moment, um, you know, getting in business with her because she was she was selling DVDs out the trunk of her car. And then she said, I want to I want to bring, you know, I've, uh, you know, we're on the same festival circuit. And she's like, I want to bring everybody together. You know, her genius move was like, well, what constitutes a national release? It's having your movie open the same day in multiple cities. It's like I've, I've already done that in festivals. What if I got all the festivals together and they showed movies the same day and we got press? Oh, oh, she did that. All right, yeah, yeah. So her first movie, I will follow. That was that was something that we did in, in I think um, eleven cities ultimately, but I think the, we were the first five cities. I want to make sure you don't uh, blow past that because that's that's pretty interesting. So basically, she figured out the definition of what counts as a national release and kind of gamed the system make her thing a national release like like she didn't need a big studio to release it a bunch of places and make it a national release she just got coordinated with a bunch of places to release it the same day in multiple cities and then that made it a national release Am I essentially yeah i mean also you have to look at technology the movies i mean it couldn't have happened 10 years before because everybody was still invested in film projection 35 millimeter projection so so but by that point you had all these multiplexes that had converted to digital and they had extra screens. You know, you have 12 screens and it's digital. So AMC chain was one of the first to say, we want to have one screen devoted to independent filmmakers. If you can show us a business model that proves that if we show your movie here, it won't be empty seats, then we're in. 
you know, so that was that was part of the strategy was, okay, well, instead of putting a million dollars worth of marketing behind a movie in terms of ad buys, we're going to go grassroots. And, you know, I, you know, for me, I, I knew I could get a hundred people easy. So the very, the very first programs, you know, before we were moving, the, the films had less commercial potential and they had, we had to move to one-nighters, but with the, the first movies we were playing four weeks. And I think uh, when we got to middle of nowhere, played three weeks in Philadelphia and over the course of time, it was playing well, probably two, it had probably a two month run overall, but the, that, that was, that attracted notice. I mean, she had attracted notice prior to that because in doing the national run of I will follow, she attracted the attention of Roger Ebert and, um, he gave, he gave her a cosign going reviews. And then, um, Eventually, you know, she had the opportunity to, she made her money back. That's the most important thing. She made her money back and she built connections from releasing I Will Follow. And she was able to make the film that she had intended to make first, which was Middle of Nowhere, which was a script that she had, I think, Sanaa Lathan and somebody else attached. And she'd gone through all the development hell trying to get it made. Nobody wanted to um, give her a break. And then she, she had enough money to basically put it together herself. And she won Sundance with it. And then, you know, that's that's where the karma comes in. You know, her co-star happened to be playing Martin Luther King. But the Lee Daniels dropped out and they needed a director. Or else they were going to lose the money to make the movie. So, you know, she found a way in two weeks to rewrite the whole script and get the movie done on, on time and under budget. And, you know, that that was her rocket, you know. So so that's that's sort of like your your basis of, of her story. Yeah, so that's the end of part one. Come back next episode for part two. We hope you enjoyed this and we hope you enjoy the next part even more. Take care.